Hey there, everyone. This is Bryn. Just chiming in here to introduce for you our third episode of Or We Could Change. Once again, this is one of our episodes from the archives. We originally recorded this in November 2022. And as you all know, a lot has happened since then. So please keep that in mind when you listen. Some of the science may be slightly out of date. Some of the news items may be slightly out of date. So please keep that in mind. But again, enjoy this little time capsule from one year ago. Thanks again for listening. Wildfires, floods, storms, and droughts. We're seeing the evidence every day now. We can't deny that global warming is a crisis. We can keep going with business as usual, or we can actually start to fix it. We're trying to figure out how to tell the story of global warming so that it inspires big actions that meet the moment. We can keep changing the climate, or we could change. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three. My name's Ali Hashemi. You might remember me from episodes one and two. And this is Aaron Yeager joining as well. Bram Bernie. Welcome. So I think maybe as a starting point, the three of us can just kind of get caught up to uh, some of the things we've been thinking about recently in our research on this topic and let the, uh, let the audience in on a bit of our process as far as the way that we just sort of talk through all of these topics, like in our typical meetings when we... Uh, figure out what <laughs> what it is that we're going to be researching further and as we kind of build on our body of knowledge and how to talk about how to explore this topic. So I can't help but uh, think about one topic that's been in uh, the news a lot, which is the whole Patagonia thing. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, the CEO, founder of Patagonia, what's his name again? Yvon Chouinard. Okay. Um, just uh, basically handed over ownership of the company into a complex charity structure that uh, basically turns Patagonia, the clothing company, into an endowment, so to speak, I guess, where all of the profits outside of what it takes to run the company goes directly into climate-related benefits. And... uh, you know, for anyone who's been following this, it seems like a really cool idea. Uh, the sort of counterpoint commentary that I've heard is it's like what he's doing or what this family is doing with their fortune happens to be great. But the fact that billionaires have the power to shelter, like first to accrue this much wealth, shelter it from taxes yeah. and then decide what to spend it on is in some ways a very scary problem with our society. In this particular case, it seems like they are sincere. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, it's, it is it is obviously a massive problem, but it just shows how cynical we've all become that it's like automatically, like as soon as this is announced, there is inevitably like four or five different uh, counterpoints on that. And immediately people are like, oh, they're just evading taxes. They're just... You know, so it it is like worth um, questioning the motives, like obviously, because we have to look at everything critically these days. But it does kind of like, I don't know, like nobody is able to just like accept that you can potentially make a big move like that 
for the, you know, greater good and modeling it for people. There has to be like, you know, but it is like also just like infighting within mm -hmm. progressive circles yeah. as well, like I, as always <laughs> exists. The, the cynical take definitely has like called him out for as a tax, tax avoidance or minimization yeah. play, which is not true because that, that figure is if he were to sell the company, which he is not. Right. Uh, but the other part, which I think Aaron alluded to, and it's true, is this systemic problem that we have. And it's interesting to compare this to a very similar donation in late August, where a very large $1.6 billion donation was made to a politically focused nonprofit for right-wing interests. Um, and so then it just becomes who has the most money. Yeah. And that's not really... What yeah. we want to be That's doing. That's how democracy is supposed to work. Yeah. Yeah. And both of these entities, both the Patagonia and uh, that other uh, person, they use the same structure. Uh, I think it's a 5021C nonprofit to be able to hold the money as a trust to then disperse to the causes that they see mm -hmm. fit. At the same time, though, I think it is worth acknowledging that this person could have been greedier and they weren't. And right. they're going exactly against sort of what capitalism should be. And part of what they said is they want a different type of capitalism, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, from the things that I read and listened to analyzing this particular situation, all the actual evidence seems to be showing that these people are actually sincere in what they're trying to do uh, with Patagonia. And that even throughout the history of the company, they always seem to be a little uneasy about the... I mean, the thing that had me convinced was... The idea that apparently there were times when, uh, and I think I was listening to maybe it was Today Explained from Vox, where they talked, where they played a quote, uh, like an audio recording from some past interview with the founder who was talking about how sometimes people shop too much and buy too many things mm -hmm. and saying like, if you don't really need the new product, like don't buy it from us. Like don't buy stuff just for the sake of buying stuff. Like if you need a jacket. We want you to buy the jacket from us. But if you don't need a jacket, don't buy a jacket. Like, right. it's basically kind of like don't overconsume. And there have been times in the company's history when they've shied away from more expansion. Like, I guess that means like whether it's opening more stores or doing bigger marketing campaigns where they've kind of actually tried to limit it. Um, so, but yes, it's one of those cases where it becomes the exception that proves the rule. Like mm -hmm. the fact that this is such a big story is because it's so unusual that someone would be this well-intentioned yeah. within the systems that we yeah, have. So, yeah, that's why it's a story. It, that's why it's a story. It's like, well, what's his angle? Like, yeah. what's, you know, there's always uh, the suspicion that there is an angle and, you know. Yeah, there, there's also a, a bit of a personal connection for me. When I was involved with Extinction Rebellion in Toronto, uh, Patagonia provided space for the organization to give presentations. I was giving no kidding. presentations <laughs> around the city <laughs> on the importance of the of uh, the climate crisis, and yeah, Patagonia. We were we had regular things, and they after the store closed, they would serve uh, beer and the, give popcorn, and people would come and listen to how dire the climate crisis is. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot to think about there. And like coming at this as like a documentary filmmaker and always thinking like, so where's the story or like, what's the angle on this? Or how do you like structure this story? Mm -hmm. As we talk about like in the grand scheme of things, how do we communicate the story of the climate crisis? My mind keeps going back to the idea that like a lot of great documentaries use small, specific human level stories to to convey bigger ideas mm -hmm. and a film can often like some great documentary films bounce back and forth between like the little ground level 
story, like the story of one particular person or group or whatever, one incident or event, and then the bigger, uh, the bigger themes to that mm. and kind of go back and forth. And it makes me think like th- this Patagonia thing is a very good like ground level case study story that can then bounce to a bigger theme that is in some ways counterpoint to the story itself, where it's like, this is a story of a great example of corporate philanthropy. And then you go from that to like, but here's why that's a good story, because it's so incredibly rare. (laughs) And because, uh, and then from there, we explore like examples where essentially the opposite happens. I just want to though acknowledge that we should not be hypocritical in, in this, in criticizing then that conservative donor whose yeah. donation dwarfs this, to be clear, mm-hmm. because we agree with these values. And there might be other people that agree with that guy's values and think he's doing things for the greater good. Yeah, I think that's right. It's like we, we shouldn't get carried away with applauding the, yeah, exactly. the, the cases where someone does the right <laughs> thing. We should be focusing more on why were they able to do that in the first place? Why? How does someone come to control billions of dollars? How does yeah? How does someone get into that position where they're doing things outside of democracy, even if it is a good a good thing? With all that in mind, uh, we should jump into our main deep dive for today. And and maybe as we're discussing that, we'll see other examples of where it connects with this particular mm-hmm. story. So in one of our previous um, episodes and in many of our, you know, kind of off air conversations, there have been many uh, situations where I've flagged things where I've been very shocked at certain events and certain uh, like g- glaring facts that came up where I was like, well, why don't I know about this particular aspect of the climate crisis? It's like, there's no way to deny, like clearly everyone across the world is aware that the climate crisis has reached such a uh, devastating, you know, the stakes are higher than ever. But there are several like things that I feel that most people are missing out on. And that's kind of like what we wanted to dive into today. Why is it that so many things are kind of going over our heads? And why is it that like we don't hear about many things that are coming up within this like overwhelming topic? Well, the title of this episode is why don't we already know about this? If the climate crisis is as severe and drastic with stakes as high as you guys say, why am I not alarmed? Why have I not heard about this? Um, And well, that's a really complex topic and we're not actually going to be able to answer all of that today because we could easily spend several episodes uh, going in on each of the different angles of that. Um, But the part that we will talk about today is that a lot of it is driven by entrenched interest working to stop people from being aware of the true emergency that we're facing. Um, And from there, we'll also look at um, how the concentration of media ownership and just media reporting in general plays a role in that. And finally, how people uh, respond to that uh, in terms of uh, what extra work do they have to do? What ideologies might they have internalized that direct their responses? That said, I I do want to highlight some things that are very relevant to the topic of why don't I already know about this? is the government response? Uh, What are the specific policies that the government is doing? Um, 
the scientific community's uh, perspective on messaging on this, and also the role of the advertising industry. Um, all of those three are probably another episode that we should do, but we're only lightly <laughs> going to touch on them today. Okay. Let's start with theme number one. <laughs> okay, theme number one. So that was what, the entrenched interests? Tell us about entrenched interests. Sure. So here the term is referring to the idea that within a society, uh, certain actors have accrued so much power and have benefited so much from the things that are causing the climate crisis that they have, well, an entrenched interest in stopping action because action can mean either losing wealth and ultimately power. Um, and in this case, you might already have guessed who the biggest entrenched interest is. It's the fossil fuel companies. Though, of course, um, there's a lot of secondary actors that are also complicit in it uh, that we're not going to get into as much today. But these would include, for example, energy producers, uh, car companies, all of the other people who sort of rely on that fossil fuel-based economy to generate their uh, wealth and then power. And so the general idea is that you've accrued so much money that you can use that money uh, to project power. And typically power means to be able to get things done your way, to project influence, to get people to do what you want, whether it's uh, individual people or laws or regulatory things uh, like that. Interesting. Okay. So I guess this would then break down into kind of like you've described oil companies as or like fossil fuel companies as an entrenched interest. Tell us more maybe about the political side of that, like political um, control, I guess, or right. I guess it's a matter of, in some cases, corporations that are specifically trying to control governments and in other cases, governments that maybe benefit from these power structures. Yeah, absolutely. I think most of the time today, we'll, we'll talk about the way that the, these uh, fossil fuel companies have been asserting their power by influencing government and laws. Um, at a very high level, they've spent uh, billions of dollars over the past several decades blocking action. So uh, according to a report in Forbes and Statista in 2019, the top five oil companies had spent over $200 million uh, on climate lobbying. And that's annually? That was in that one year. Yeah, wow. it goes up and down, but yeah. it, that's the order that we're talking about. Wow. And one thing that I find so interesting about lobbying is that, like, I feel like a lot of us on one level really want to assume that lawmakers actually make choices that are in the public interest. And we know, like, we hear we about these... We know that it's going yeah, on. we know it's going on. We don't know the full scope of it and the full... And when you actually see it laid out for you, it's very disturbing. Yeah. And when you see the numbers <laughs> and see the specific actions, like it's how much gross gov government has terrifying. become a customer service business, <laughs> right. you know, serving uh, a certain set of, of companies that that are basically yeah, like not the public yeah. the elite companies that it, you see yeah. numbers like that and it just feels very transactional yeah and there's a phrase that has sort of entered the popular imagination over the last several years um the deep state and in many ways uh at least in the west uh in the anglosphere uh the oil companies are part of a, the deep state yeah i think it's it's one of those cases where it's too bad that 
it's kind of like the other side politically has co-opted that term. Like in the Trump era, it became such a big thing to use the concept of the deep state for all these like bizarre conspiracy theories that are obviously total, total bogus <laughs> craziness. But then it's it's what's that expression where it's like behind every effective um form of propaganda they take like one thread of truth and then right. you pull on that and right. get in mm -hmm. and it spins into something that's crazy where right. it's like on one level yes there are these power structures that exist beyond what how we would hope our democracy would work but then anyone can then take that concept and spin it to to suit their goals well and a big difference uh with the QAnon usage of deep state as a conspiracy theory, is that they often are asserting it's the national intelligence agencies or the FBI or whatnot, and they don't provide any evidence. In the context of uh, the oil companies um, comprising deep state, or another way of thinking about it is capturing the political system, uh, a lot of these capturing. are- Capturing, yeah, I like that. <laughs> They've captured it. Yeah, and there's this idea of regulatory capture as well that is well known. And it's not just the oil companies that engage in this. Uh, the telecom companies have captured uh, the Canadian uh, regulatory agencies, the CRTC. But that's, yeah. that's an aside. We, we, we we'll, if we'll you're Canadian, you've been hearing a lot recently, especially since like the, the big Rogers breakdown in service about how poorly regulated telecoms are here because they just basically like pay to <laughs> to write their own rules but yeah yeah i guess yeah. that's what you're getting at yeah the, so the what makes this not just the fringe conspiracy theory is that there's a lot of public data and evidence for the influence of uh these companies in uh creating our laws for example um so in canada we have something called the canadian association of petroleum producers the capp that's the oil industry's principal lobby group now, okay, as lobbyists, they meet very often with um, government officials. Yet briefing notes uh, have revealed that while Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau's liberal government was presenting itself publicly as a defender of Canadians, um, on environment, trade, and NAFTA, there is a celebration of the fact that Donald Trump and his administration were pro-oil and pro-pipelines. Um, another way that this deep state operates is by setting up think tanks and creating a media ecosystem or an echo chamber where the arguments uh, that they want presented are uh, provided in one, let's say, think tank, and then it gets picked up by a sympathetic news article. And then that sets sort of the agenda for uh, public discourse and policy. Um, so there's this article in the Tai that was published a few years ago. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but it showed that in 2017, internal BC government documents showed that the uh, province's climate plan in 2016 had been secretly drafted jointly with the CAPP, in part at the CAPP's offices in Calgary. Um, similarly, prior to the last uh, federal election, uh, Justin Trudeau had promised to cut $1.6 billion in federal subsidies to the oil industry, yet two years later, this still had not happened. Um, so there's this consistent trickle of evidence uh, of things happening in the interest of the fossil fuel industry, and we can see how they are uh, pulling the levers to get this done. So we're still subsidizing this industry here? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean... It's, I don't know, it's like in the fabric of our Canadian existence. Like, it's just... 
Yeah. So in there. And just to very briefly point out the uh, international ability in the United States um, this past summer, Channel 4 did an expose of ExxonMobil with Greenpeace. Right. Yeah. We've watched it. It's uh, it's pretty wild. I mean, like they go they, this rep from ExxonMobil is so candid as he's describing, you know, working with shadow groups to try to fight the science that's presented. And then they have weekly check ins with um, government officials like Joe Manchin, like it's just they're they're right in there and they're not afraid to say it like they're not afraid to say how far they've gone to protect their quote unquote investment. Um, and, you know, he's quick. This this person that they sort of um, they, they do their covert um, interview with. He's quick to say it's not illegal. It's not illegal. I can't stress that it's not illegal. Yeah. It's just, you know. Yeah, it, this is, okay, super smooth segue time. Yeah. When I watched that, and I know this is one of the things we were going to be talking about, it reminded me so much of tobacco lobbyists and the way that they would use tactics to um, dissuade the public from paying attention to the real science and the things mm -hmm. that they were learning and that tobacco companies learned very early on about the health problems caused by tobacco and and companies like that always wanted to get like ahead of the curve on yeah. where even their their opposition would be. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Um, and there was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed the fossil fuel industries have been uh, funding fake grassroots groups to make it appear that they are, there's more pro-oil support amongst the general population. That's dirty. And in sort of, it is. It's, it's, it's awful. <laughs> I'm literally dirty. dirty. Yeah. And, and it's remarkable that it took until this summer, but uh, again, just for the first time a few weeks ago, Antonio Guterres, uh, the former UN Secretary General, said, we seem trapped in a world where fossil fuel producers and financiers have the humanity by the throat. For decades, the fossil fuel industry has invested heavily in pseudoscience and public relations with a false narrative to minimize their responsibility for climate change and undermine ambitious climate policies. They exploited precisely the same scandalous tactics as big tobacco decades before. And if this is maybe an opportunity for a little bit of optimism, as bad as the tobacco lobbyists and tactics were, we of course know now with the benefit of hindsight that eventually enough forces of public sentiment and political will amassed against those tactics to actually move the needle and significantly reduce uh, the rate of consumption of tobacco and the marketing of tobacco and things like that in, in countries like Canada and the United mm -hmm. States. Of course, we also know that those companies pivoted toward marketing their products to other people overseas. And in order for uh, these policies to really, really have a permanent lasting change, you have to tackle not just your domestic market, but also export and, and think of it more globally. But there has been some success with, with tobacco. The main difference, though, the tobacco companies had not captured governments. And so it was governments that passed the laws increasing tobacco taxes, that passed the laws banning certain types of tobacco industry. In this case, um, fossil fuel companies uh, have oversized influence over uh, government policy. Right. 
I guess I'm I'm thinking more in terms of like the public sentiment and uh, going back to that idea of like narratives, like the stories we tell ourselves over what's what's normal for our society. Like what do right. we want as people to the extent that maybe governments eventually sometimes hold a mirror up to to what the people actually want? Not always. I mean, there's obviously all sorts of structural problems where it doesn't work out, but. This is more in keeping with the final theme, Aaron, the people's response. It's also a good segue yeah. on media. Right. Um, okay. So there's, there's a study that came out. So I agree that the narratives absolutely play a role. Um, and uh, there's this idea that uh, people don't respond to scientific evidence. If you tell them about something, they don't actually uh, absorb that and change their minds if you pre pre present them scientific facts. A study came out this June in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that actually looked at this topic. And basically what they did is uh, they had about 3,000 online participants who participated in four waves of the experiment in the fall of 2020. In the first wave, all the participants read authentic articles in the popular media that provided information reflecting the scientific consensus on climate change. And now the participants were of different uh, political orientation and different stances on the severity of the climate crisis. Um, and in most cases, the scientific uh, communication actually did have an effect. However, in the second and third waves of the experiment, uh, the experimenters provided either another scientific article, an opinion article that was skeptical of the climate science, or an article that discussed the partisan debate over climate change. And they found that when they presented an opinion article skeptical of climate change or a partisan sort of both sides to the, to the issue, then the people whose mind were changed reverted back. And so this, is a, this ties both to the tactics of tobacco and now fossil fuel companies to stoke a fake debate, a fake controversy, and a great segue to the next um, topic of the role of the media in All communicating right. and helping us, well, not helping us understand the severity of, of the crisis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this theme, the role of the media in how much we know or don't know about the crisis and its urgency is, again, very complex. And uh, we're not going to get to everything that we want to talk about that one could say about this. So th there was an interesting article that was published in The Conversation recently um, that talked about the five pillars of climate change denial. Uh, and specifically, uh, those five pillars have a lot of overlap with the fossil fuel tobacco playbook. Um, they are science denial. So that's the one that it's become less common. But basically, you say it's not the, the science of climate change, science of tobacco and lung cancer is not settled. And deniers might say climate change is just a part of the natural cycle or climate mod models are unreliable and too sensitive to carbon dioxide, sort of what Jordan Peterson said. <laughs> um, but th that one largely has been discredited and there are excellent resources online that debunk many of the common talking points. Right. So this is when I hear the term like sowing doubt, basically, right. like so, uh, that would be this. Uh, yeah, I feel like luckily that tactic does seem to be losing some steam, at least amongst like rational people. Yeah, and that's become fringe. The, the next ones are um, very relevant. Uh, the next one being economic denial, and that has a very close connection to our last theme. But the idea here is that climate change is too expensive to fix. 
Um, it's a more subtle form of climate denial, um, even though the facts uh, sort of show that the costs of not uh, doing something about climate change are far higher than the cost of taking action today. Um, there's an interesting aside there. Uh, if you recall, when um, the internet sort of revolution was coming along, you would often hear about, oh, you know, there are winners and losers in any economy, and people just need to adapt to the future. How come they don't say that about oil investors? Yeah. Right? How come there aren't winners and losers there, and we can't let the oil investors lose? It's an interesting, it's an interesting hmm. double thing, and you don't hear this in the media, right? Yeah, you don't hear enough of people who, and, and I'm not saying this to position our conversation as pro-capitalist, but the funny thing is that when you ask people who admire capitalism as a system what they admire about it, they'll use terms like competition, and they'll use terms like free market, and they talk about things as if, like, it's not under these systems of control, as if there aren't these like monopolies yeah. or entrenched interests or or situations where there clearly isn't like all of the all of the things that they would talk about as being the way they want the system to work is not how it's working because mm -hmm. you know they should not be in favor of subsidizing an industry like this or you know when we see. Uh, a factory close or like, you know, it was like the big thing with like car companies moving factories outside overseas. of you know, overseas yeah. or wherever. It would cripple a local community. Yeah. Destroy like a, a city a, or whatever. Yeah. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. My hometown, this yeah. is exactly what happened. Yeah, people <laughs> lose their jobs and yeah. then the cap, the pro-capitalist people are like, look, that's the reality of progress, right? right? But you're, you're right, no. like no one ever says that with this. Like, yeah. yeah. Which is very interesting and revealing. Now, yeah. I don't want to be glib and lack empathy. I think the workers who have a limited amount of autonomy in choosing where they end up working, mm -hmm. they should be protected. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, indeed, just a few days ago, uh, Seth Klein, who's written a great book on uh, adapting to climate, and uh, he's on the Climate Emergency Unit team lead, um, has been talking about a just transition. And he's been suggesting that Canada allocate $25 billion for transitioning away from fossil fuels to mm -hmm. the people that would be affected. Mm -hmm. Where I would draw the line personally is, I think, especially as an investor, that's too bad. If as an investor, you took a bet on this industry and this industry is dead and it's destroying the world, I don't think you should get bailed out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bail out the, the workers, the people who don't have agency yeah. in this whole situation. Right. But the investors, it's like, yeah, you, you're right. You made a bad bet. Yeah. Tough. You know, th that's where the whole stranded assets like, thing yeah. comes up. It's like companies or investors who are just like gritting their teeth over the fact that there might be like fossil fuels that they technically own and control. And people are telling them like you're not allowed to to like sell it or whatever. And they, they get so upset about that. And yeah, we have to change that whole way of talking about that. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but the last point I would say on that with regard to the investors there's absolutely no reason for pension funds to remain invested in this industry. That is often used as a reason of why we can't transition away from fossil fuels too quickly. Oh, uh, all your pensions, all the teachers, all these people have so much to lose. Well, divest. <laughs> there's no reason. It's almost a dereliction of duty on the parts of those fund managers to remain invested in these industries. But let me get back to the other uh, pillars of climate change denial. So the first two pillars, one, science denial, two, economic denial, three, humanitarian denial. 
And so this is the people that are going to say, oh, you know what? It's actually going to be nicer. Um, climate change is actually good for us. We're going to have longer, warmer summers in temperate zones. Farming is going to become more productive. You saw a little bit of this in the UK this summer. They had a crazy heat wave. And some of the right wing media outlets were like, oh, look, you have better swimming now. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, oh, that, that's horrifying. That's like spin beyond. Yeah, there, there was this one fascinating. I mean, I hope many of our listeners have heard of the movie Don't Look Up. Uh, there's that famous breakdown where uh, yeah. when the scientists go on that morning show and the hosts are like, we want to talk about something uplifting and positive. <laughs> Earlier this summer in the UK, a meteorologist was yeah. like, so many people are going to be affected by this negatively. And the news anchor was like, well, isn't there something more positive to say about this? Heat oh, wave? my God. Wow. Talk about life imitating uh, yeah. art. Um, and then the next uh, pillar is political denial. So these climate change deniers will argue that we cannot take actions because other countries aren't taking action. And so it's sort mm. of a form of whataboutism or who moves first, mm -hmm. uh, which sort of ignores who's responsible and absolves any sort of leadership and setting example. Um, and then the last one, which is very related to what we um, are talking about today, is crisis denial, which is, you know what, it's actually climate change is not a big deal. We have lots of time. Let's not rush into anything. Let's not shake up the system. There's too much uncertainty. So and the scientists, it's not really as bad as they, they make it out to be. Wow. Yeah, I, I want to bounce quickly back to that political denial thing, because I've heard this argument made in a couple ways. One is like here in Canada that we're a, a relatively small country in terms of population. So why, you know, anything that we do to change our carbon footprint is going to be a drop in the bucket globally. So why should we, you know, hobble our mm -hmm. economy over something that's not going to have a huge impact? It's that idea that like, well, until India and China are doing exactly the same thing, why should we have to be the ones who lead? And I'll even hear the same argument from, you know, a U.S a perspective of like, well, unless every country does it, which is a logical fallacy, but also that has never stopped these countries before. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it has not. It, at no point in our history have we ever thought because our population is only a certain size or because we're only a certain proportion of the whole world or because not every country is doing a certain thing already, we're not going to do it. In fact, a lot of the way that the world has developed up until this point has been because one country or a few countries have taken a certain lifestyle, a certain product or service or thing that they turn into a trend and spread it globally. I mean, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of, again, like the people who are advocates in favor of capitalism talk about things like rock and roll and blue jeans and McDonald's, like spreading all over the world. And bringing bringing prosperity with them or whatever the argument is and it's like okay so when it was at that time you were cool with the idea that like oh your country is only one small part of the world but you can popularize an idea and then everyone's going to want to do it too but now no one's like hey we could popularize decarbonization and then maybe other countries will follow exactly but no one's taking that yeah up, they're that not attitude. willing to for yeah, some reason yeah yeah we consider ourselves as the leaders of the world the U.S. In is the North shining. Yeah. 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 And the other part, though, which has always bothered me about that, art, uh, that argument, which is we're just a drop in a bucket. I mean, a beach is made up of uh, many grains of sand. Those drops add up. 
you can break down anything where it's always a drop. Yeah. Right. By country, every country is a drop. By industry, mm-hmm. every industry is a drop, and then you just never do anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And then the last pillar um, is crisis denial, and so this is the idea that uh, we shouldn't really rush into changing things. There's so much uncertainty. We don't really know what's going to happen. Um, And so climate change might not be as bad as the scientists are making it out to be. So we're not really in a crisis. So we got we got time. We got time. Yikes. Yeah. And if you're paying attention to the science, if we're an evidence based society that uh, pays attention to our best understanding of the world, that should be obviously ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I love when the the people who say, you know, the science is still not 100%, you know, not every detail is confirmed yet, so we shouldn't take any action. I also think, but anytime you fly in an airplane, you're just trusting that the science that's behind making that possible is good enough. When you take medication, you're trusting that the science is good enough it's like, how much scientific consensus do you need, need yeah. until you're finally willing to take action? Like, it's it's weird. I mean, I, I just personally love the the um, analogy of some of these technologies because I just think of like even the Apple Watch that I'm wearing. And it's like the fact that this exists, that we created this as a species is preposterous. And this is a thing that exists. And it's like we're all willing to take science for granted when it comes to like cool products that we buy. But when it comes to science saying like, um, we're destroying the planet and threatening our survival, everyone's like, well, but what if there's like one scientist that we were able to find who disagrees with you? Like, I'm sure 50,000 of them agree. But what if I find one, one person who doesn't? Then, and then I guess to, there's still debate. Yeah, we have to give mm-hmm. two sides. There's two sides to every story. It's, yeah. The, the other part on the same point, um, earlier this summer, uh, the, J, the CEO of JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, and, and one of the things that we didn't really talk about much in this episode in terms of interest, interest is the banks. They are the ones that make continued fossil fuel uh, production and development possible because it's very, it's very capital intensive to finance these projects. And JP Morgan globally is one of the worst banks for this. And so earlier this summer, I think it was August 14, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, was complaining about why can't we get it through our thick skulls that if you want to solve climate change, it is not against climate for America to boost more oil and gas. So this is a not scientist going against the entire scientific consensus. And I should mention at this point, it's not just scientific consensus, the International Energy Association, hardly a leftist, hardly a um, a, a liberal washy um, institution has said we have to leave new fossil fuels in the ground. Scientists are saying this, and in this article, not a mention of what I just said. Not a mention of the IEA Mm. saying we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. Not a mention of the overwhelming scientific consensus that we cannot be extracting more uh, new fossil fuels, and we probably should be. And the way that Jamie Dimon is framing it is like we're replacing fossil fuels with coal. Therefore, we need more fossil fuels because coal is worse. It doesn't occur to him that what we should be doing is focusing on just overall reducing, right? He's caught in this capitalist infinite growth ideology. And that takes me to the last part of how the media is sort of dropping the ball. Um, earlier this summer, and it's, it's sort of been happening over the past several years, 
scientists, again, the people that are most informed about the risks, the people that are losing sleep because they know what's coming, um, have been encouraging media outlets across the world to adopt more proactive, consistent language mm. when talking about the climate crisis. And 30 newsrooms now across the world from uh, middle to large publications have adopted this. For example, Scientific American, I think Wired. Um, it's notable that the CBC has not. They do not use the word climate crisis and emergency because they think it's a political uh, statement and they don't want to take sides in a political thing, which is crazy. Science is now cast as a political action. Yeah. I mean, we've seen this like over the past two years, like the pol like the politicization of, of lots of different science, um, you know, especially when it comes to like vaccines and health sciences like that's become like a political issue. And it really it's it's literal data, like it's literal data. Mm -hmm. um, so basically. Uh, for anyone out there who is not from Canada, CBC is our national broadcaster, our like pub, like our government funded broadcaster. And what you're saying, Ali, is that they view calling it an emergency, which it is like a crisis, an emergency. Uh, they're saying that that's editorializing like that's yeah. their stance on it. Yeah, th this has been obviously a problem that we've been seeing a lot in um, a reluctance to. I kind of equate it to this false objectivity idea that if you're doing responsible journalism, you're supposed to be objective. You're not supposed to take sides. But then when it comes to that question of, well, what is objectivity? What does that mean in the context of any given story? It's often not well defined. And you need to be able to present the facts as facts. And then it's the question of what do you do with that information? where you want to stay perhaps objective. If you feel the need as an institution to stay objective, it's not, is there a climate emergency? It's what do we do about it? And I can, yeah. I can see how a newsroom would say, well, we shouldn't be using specific language that shows that we're taking a side on what are the next steps that we take as a society? Because let's leave that to the people, the experts who need to debate that. What, where do we go from here? But when it's just a matter of the basic fact of the situation we're in, they somehow managed to get it together that, you know, the COVID pandemic was an emergency. Mm -hmm. And then the debate was, so what do we do about it? And that needs to be what happens with climate. We're yeah. in an emergency. Good okay, point. now we can talk about what do we do about it? And then there's another aspect of uh, the difficulties that the media faces, which isn't just this top-down editorial stance, but it's also, I, I suppose, a structural um, artifact of how media companies are, and maybe just in the general lack of climate literacy for many reporters. Um, so what I mean by this, um, even some of the uh, organizations that occasionally put out excellent climate news, like the New York Times or CNN, they have some excellent uh, segments that do deep dives on issues. But in their reporting of, let's say, the heat waves that occurred, um, often those get reported by the local news people who don't have the climate knowledge. And so you get a lot of these one-off standalone articles that are rooted in the climate crisis, but the climate crisis is never mentioned in it. Um, and it's been getting a little bit better, but I think we need maybe a climate literacy uh, program for <laughs> journalists. Um, and what we need to do, and this is where it segues to our last topic, is we 
right now rely on people to do additional work to connect the dots. What I mean by that is if you're reading about a flood in China, you're reading about uh, fires in California, you're reading about a heat wave in France, it's up to you to connect the dots that, hey, these are all symptoms of, the cl of climate change. They don't mention the other extreme weather events in each of those articles. Mm, mm, and sometimes okay. they don't even mention climate. I see, what, yeah. I see what you mean. Right? Like each, each of those global catastrophes happening in a different country at a you know, different part of the year is each treated as its own completely siloed Separate event. Issue. So, and it's, not even it, different yeah. part of the year. It could or, be, yeah. yeah. It or could even be. at the same time. Yeah. Um, this actually makes me think about, um, you know, what's happening right now in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the horrifying flooding yeah. that has happened there. And I have started to see some coverage of that talk about uh, climate. And part of that is because apparently there are some people calling for responsibility uh, to be taken. Well, by reparations, other... like Rep actual reparations. Yeah. I yeah. saw that as a... The idea that um, there's a humanitarian crisis there. And... One would hope that other countries, uh, organizations would step in and provide aid and provide resources mm -hmm. to help people. But there's uh, an argument for that that some people are making where they're basically saying, don't just do this out of the goodness of your heart because it's right to help people yeah. who are in crisis. Take do this, accountability. Do this, yeah, to take yeah. accountability because frankly, you owe us because a lot of the countries that produce the emissions that set all of this in motion are not Pakistan. Like they yeah. are suffering the consequences of <sighs> other parts of the world that have created most the, of the emissions. The most wealthy and powerful countries yeah. are the ones further marginalizing and causing this devastation. So they should take that financial burden of rebuilding. But mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this should be another episode, episode. altogether. Climate justice and are you uh, responsible for your historical emissions and to what degree and how? Uh, I mean, the, the rich countries promised about $100 billion several years ago in aid to um, many of the countries that are going to be mm -hmm. worst affected. Uh, through creative accounting, they claim they've paid up about $30 billion, but it's mostly in debt. So it's not really actually aid. It's just Ugh. more loans. Yeah. Um, but we should probably do yeah, a deep dive on that. Yeah, let's make a note of that. Yeah. that. That's like fodder for an, our next deep dive. Yeah, that's a good topic to explore in a big way. Now, to close this off and move into our last topic, what newspapers or uh, outlets could do, not just news, TV, internet, uh, there's this idea of boilerplate. Um, the Economist is really good at this. If there's a, uh, let's say, a geopolitical situation, they usually have one or two paragraphs that they repeat at the beginning or in the middle of every article that provides some of the background context, right? It's sort of a refresher. Mm, okay. And we need this climate boilerplate for extreme weather events or that's for a, many of the things that are occurring. That's an excellent idea. Like just in summary, you know, like just so you all know, the context of this article is that, you know, yeah. like in a very specific repetitive language, like that's, yeah, that's an incredible idea. I've never heard of this, this, this. Uh, I wonder if we could challenge ourselves to write a sample <laughs> of what that might look like. Sure. Yeah. An idea that I'd had in the past was to take a, and this could be something that people could do at home if they like this type of stuff. Uh, take a news article and redline it. 
cross out all the places where they're not saying the right thing or they're minimizing the right mm-hmm. thing or leaving out the influence of something and write in the right thing. You know how in when you were in high school, your teacher would do that. Yeah. Do this for uh, articles that are being published by the media. Yeah. But I wonder, like, when you jump into the daily news stories, like a lot of us do and see what's happening in the world and see a story about a flood or a fire or something like that. And there is that missing paragraph or piece of context, that common language that we should be seeing repeated over and over and over to make sure that we hammer it into people enough that it's clear and they remember it and it's where their mind goes automatically. Let's try to write a statement like that. And maybe in our next episode or at some point, we can like present a sample of what that might look like if you were to insert that bit of context at the beginning or middle of, of a story that helps people connect those dots more automatically mm-hmm. between that particular story and all the other things that are happening in the world at the same time. Yeah. I think you would have like three or four boilerplate variations or maybe more, but yeah. 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 That would be a fun exercise. Absolutely. Okay. Now to get to uh, the people's response, just on that point, because we don't have this background, because we don't have this context, because a business editor is reporting on, on JP Morgan and not mentioning what scientists are saying, it's left for people to connect the dots. That's a lot of work. If you mm-hmm. are busy with life and all you're reading is a headline or maybe just skimming a, a paragraph, it's going to be hard for you to do that. And so that contributes a lot to not being aware of the scale and degree of the emergency. But there are other, many other reasons as well, including, for example, uh, internalized capitalism, which sort of connects to that, uh, one of those pillars that we talked about, mm-hmm. which is the economic denial of climate change. Yeah, the internalized capitalism, or as I think of it, my constant amazement that so many people in our society seem so concerned about the quote unquote economy when they have no actual day to day connection with it or understand what an economy. I mean, it's so hard to even understand what an economy is. It's almost like um, it's it's almost like a uh, a reflex for people. Yeah, you know, like whenever there's some suggestion of massive change, there's always this like impulsive like uh like reaction of like oh but jobs oh but you know but what is this gonna cost me how or, yeah, how much are my like, taxes gonna go up so yeah. that you can unfuck our planet and and it's like there's never a like you know nobody takes a beat to like consider that they just automatically jump in with this response of like, oh, no, oh, no, like, what's it going to cost? Like, are, you know, are we going to suddenly be out of work? Are we suddenly not going to be able to pay our mortgage? Like, it's just always Mm -hmm. a panic response. And this sort of ties everything together really nicely, that point. Um, One thing to note, and next time you hear a politician speak, what in most of the world, most people now are simply consumers. We're not citizens, we're not humans, yeah. we're not living beings, we're simply consumers in an economy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a way of seeing the world where this quote-unquote economy is mm-hmm. uh, predominant and prioritized over everything else. Yeah. And then the other part in terms of what is the economy, and this is the role of the media now, uh, it's often equated with how well the stock market is doing. Now, what's interesting is only 17% of people actually have any exposure to the stock market directly. Yeah. So it's a tiny segment, but people have internalized because of the way the, the media is reporting it, yeah. that the economy means, oh, the um, Dow Jones went up, then that means I must somehow be doing good. Yeah. Or even in a little like granular Canadian example, 
you know, the fossil fuel industry in this country is so heavily concentrated in certain specific regions. And of course, we all hear constantly about Alberta and their connection to the fossil fuel industry here. And you hear this same refrain about the jobs that it'll cost if you hurt that industry. But so many of the people who live and work in that industry in Alberta moved there from other parts of the country because industries that once were thriving in other parts of the country left or shrank or whatever the case may be. So you had people move from Newfoundland or Southern Ontario or wherever to Alberta for those jobs mm -hmm. because other industries perished in those locales. So it's kind of like, but now people don't want, it's, it's almost like there's a historical amnesia where there's always this change and there's always this progress and people accept that things change and things happen and one industry rises and another one falls and whatever. But then a lot of people kind of then lock in that perspective into present day. Like the way things are right now is how they have to be forever. As if there hasn't been so much change that has taken us to this point. As if we've always been exactly this way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, why do we care about certain industries, but not others? Yeah. I guess it's what the propagandists tell us to care about. <laughs> no, but actually, I yeah, you see it. It's it's a weird reflex. It's like the like the little hammer hitting the knee, and you get the like the mm -hmm. reflex thing. The way that people care about certain things is it is it because they just grew up hearing about those things? It's what they're what they're used to. It's the narratives that that they've been indoctrinated with. I don't know. I mean, part of it could also be if you have a shrinking middle class and people who are. Um, worried about their economic stability and safety, then when you vote, for example, the stability of the economy might become the most important issue because that's the most immediate thing facing you. Um, whereas something that might actually be more important, like uh, our degradation and destruction of the environment and the climate, uh, might take a backseat to that. Yeah. Yeah. But even if you do care, if your focus is, you're worried about the loss of jobs. The other thing that I find intriguing is that sometimes there will be job losses, not for this reason, but for like other, other yeah. reasons. Like just to use an example of like an oil company might reduce the size of their labor force because they have new technology and new automation that allows them to do the same thing with fewer workers. So if an oil company lays off 20% of their workforce to increase their profits, just because that's in their business interest, then no one's getting worked up about that the same way that this concern of like, well, if some jobs go away because the industry is inherently causing harm and because new regulations or the work of activists or the truths revealed by science lead us down a path of doing things differently, then everyone's concerned about the jobs. But, right. but I'm pretty sure I've read that like the number of people who are employed in certain fossil fuel uh, sectors now is actually like down from what it was at its all time high because companies have reduced the size of labor force for their own reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a poll that came out a couple of years ago uh, in terms of priorities in developing a strategy to fight climate change. This was done by the Environics Institute. And at the top of the list, it's ensuring that all regions of Canada benefit from a strong economy. That's about 60, 62% of respondents. Next was keeping taxes low. 
Then it was making sure that our businesses are competitive with the US. <laughs> then, and these were like uh, 50%, 46%. And then it was meeting the greenhouse gas reduction targets that Canada agreed to in the Paris Climate Agreement, which, by the way, scientists tell us is nowhere near enough. And that was only the top priority for about 40% of respondents, which is a little bit uh, worrisome. And so it comes back to the personal response. Why are we not prioritizing that higher over everything else? I mean, we've, we've spoken a little bit about that, right? The role of the entrenched interest and the media in not doing a proper job and actively uh, providing misinformation. But then there's also a psychological response that you sort of touched on here, Aaron. Yeah. I mean, I know on a personal level, like it is it is just too. Yeah, it is too overwhelming. Like, for example, like when it's just dry scientific facts that is like hard to swallow for some people or for some people to understand. So it's like, you know, there is like huge, devastating psychological impacts. But then there's also this like like all these like detailed de data points that are over most people's heads. So it's just like you kind of get stuck and like frozen in this mm -hmm. like, you Absolutely. know. Okay, so people are seeking comfort. Yeah. In a topic that has the potential to be despairing and traumatizing, it's a lot easier to seek comfort or to look for voices that are telling you what you want to hear. Yeah, exactly. Like you're going to go for the, the people who are like, ah, calm down, it's not that bad. Like it's, you know, like it's the confirmation bias that, you know, we see all over the place. And if and if, you know, like the media isn't doing a good job, uh, you know, being consistent with their messaging and letting all the misinformation there, then it's going to be easy for people to just like find, you know, voices of quote unquote authority that just confirms the things that are going to comfort them, mm -hmm. you know, well. This is probably why those ads that fossil fuel companies run that make it seem like they're doing something and they're part of the solution oh, are probably so effective because a yeah. lot of people see an ad they're from- like, oh, They kind of care. Yeah. They kind of care about, you know, our future. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not so bad. The you ad know? always has a stock footage shot of a scientist in a chemistry lab with some sort of green or blue colored right. fluid right. as if they're like working on some new clean fuel that's mm -hmm. green and whatever. And, and those ads, prob you know, they run so much probably because they work and they're effective because they're telling people what they want to hear, which is that, we don't have to make any drastic changes in our lives. The power structures that mm -hmm. exist are generally fine. These companies can evolve and pivot a little bit and then things will be better. And rather than question like the whole system or deal with those big, big questions that are very jarring for us to deal with of like, what if we have to do things totally different? Right. Yeah. If I were to sort of summarize what I think I heard you guys say, um, first, it's, there is a bit of an information problem. Mm -hmm. access to information. We sort of yeah. spoke about that in regards in to the, the misinformation yeah. and the fact that you have to do a lot of extra work, right? Unless you have a behavior to seek out this information, you're probably not going to, or you have a friend like us who's like constantly badgering you with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be hard. But then even when you do get the information, it can be overwhelming. It's dry. Yeah. It's scientifically uh, difficult to, and uh, another critique that we didn't actually get into that sort of goes into the science side is why do people keep on talking about 2100? Tell me what's going to happen in 2040. Because many people, when they yeah. hear 2100, that's too far. Like mm -hmm. that's your, maybe your grandchildren, depending on how old you are. Um, give us some data about 2030, 2040. I, I feel like everything should, at least 2050. 
stop doing just 2100. Mm -hmm. And certainly there are um, some elements of this that are on the order of hundreds, if not thousands of years, like the Greenland ice sheets. Yeah. And sure, for those, it doesn't it might not make sense uh, as much sense to talk about 2100. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Bryn, you spoke about this, which is that psychological response, right? Despair, overwhelming. The other mm -hmm. part of it as well is like, we might not be the good guys. And that... That's like, a hard pill to swallow, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, we might have been the villains the whole time, <laughs> you know? And then coming to terms with the fact that we're probably going to be living in a forced hypocrisy as well. Yeah. Right? That people really have a hard time with that. Like, in a variety of uh, big issues. Like, that is, like, a problem, like, you know, with, like, online, like, call-out culture. Like, there's always, like, this desire to call out hypocrisy. Like, that is, like, the worst thing that you can possibly be caught in. You know, whereas in, like, late-stage capitalism especially, like, we're going to inevitably live in hypocrisy. That's just, you know, the way, like, it, it's very difficult to not live in hypocrisy. So I think, you know, this is something we've talked about as a group, is that we have to start becoming more comfortable with it because it's not anyone's fault. Yeah. You know, it's well, not our e fault that we have to live in there's hypocrisy. There's an old expression for this. Yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's not our, we, t we have to take responsibility for it and we need to work to change the system but recognize that as individuals, we're limited in yeah. what we can do. Yeah, right? yeah, that's what I mean, really, yeah. is like we have limited uh, agency in a lot of these things. Like there are a Alone. lot, yeah. you know, like it because because of the vanishing like middle class and because of like the systems that exist, like we're all having yeah. to, you know, do things to survive that are maybe not in our best, that are not in our best interest and that are not great for society. And we can't, if we focus too much on that, uh, like on the on every single detail of that, it can feel you. It can like get you stuck, like just like all the other things. It's it's, it's overwhelming. To tie that to sort of the um, part of the goal of mm -hmm. our podcast and yeah. something that you've both been saying is that we need these narratives. This uh, psychological state of being in cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. we, we're not maybe the good guys in all respects. Uh, we might be living in hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. That is fertile ground for misinformation and other types of uh, ideological twisting. Right. And so providing that type of narrative that can show a way out of this cognitive dissonance could also be a very powerful and effective tool for climate. Yeah, narratives are super important because the stories we tell ourselves of what we can attain or aspire to, mm -hmm. it takes time to change. It takes time to fix problems. Yeah. But first, you need to agree on the goals. First, you need to kind of set your sights higher. And so you can drive a car, but verbally say out loud, it would be better if I wasn't driving this car or it would be better if. I didn't have an hour long commute to work and there was a way to do this that didn't involve burning all these fossil fuels and also probably didn't involve me wasting so much of my life doing something I don't even enjoy doing. So you have to start by being able to acknowledge to yourself and to the other people in your life that you're talking to, to be able to kind of say it out loud as a, as a narrative, as a story that you're telling, we can do things differently today, like this particular Sunday. I can't do things differently yet, but here's where I see that story going to be able to like, that's what we mean when we're talking about narratives is to be able to actually write the next chapter. 
And and there's this really cool, um, I don't know, subculture that has come out. Uh, have you guys heard of solar punk? No. 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 You've heard of steampunk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's sort of, uh, and you've heard of cyberpunk. Yeah. Right? Like cyberpunk is, let's say, uh, William Gibson's, um, uh, or what, uh, it's Blade Runner, a sort of dystopian uh, corporate future. Steampunk. Well, solar punk is sort of imagining a positive future where we've sort of embedded ourselves uh, sustainably into nature. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people working within that uh, framework to come up with these types of narratives that you're talking about. Wow, that's really interesting. Sort of tying everything that we've been talking about uh, together uh, is an article that was published in the Chicago Tribune just uh, on September 18th. And it says, as climate change, this is the title of the article, as climate change speaks loudly through heat waves, flooding, and wildfires, here are five things you can do to try to turn the tide. So this is being published in like uh, one of the largest cities in North America. Number one, adjust how you travel. Number two, buy locally. Number three, create green spaces. Number four, plant a tree. <laughs> a tree. And, well, planting, uh, it says planting a tree. Okay. And number three, practicing energy efficiency. I'm just reading the title. So these were the five things. Don't reduce consumption. That's not it. Don't <laughs> vote. Don't, don't think about this systemically. Think about it as an individual action that doesn't even connect you to other people. And like, these are all like on their own. They're not bad things. Like we should be doing yeah, they're them. They're all good things that we should do. But yeah, it's true. It doesn't go far enough to like say, you know, it doesn't bring you into the collective. Yeah. It doesn't help you question the systems in place yeah. at all. Yeah, we need uh, to treat this as fighting a war for our survival as mm -hmm. a species yeah. against this problem and recognizing that as a species, we are at our strongest when we operate as a social uh, creature, as a collective, and yeah. that we can't fight this on our own as over 7 billion separate individuals. It makes no sense at all to think that that would work. But that is obviously like a very mm -hmm. common narrative that people like to hear. And uh, putting the responsibility on the individual is... Your personal footprint yeah, personal, brought to you by yeah. Shell. Yeah. yeah. It's a, well, it's, it's a capitalist uh, like ideology, yeah. you know, personal responsibility. That's the thing is that when you make it about individual responsibility, it's then so easy for us as individuals who have so much going on in our lives and so many things that cause us stress and so many things that we're responsible for to be like, I just need to get to work in the morning. I just need to pick up my kids from school or I just need to eat a meal or I just need to do this thing. And so, yeah, I'll try to like wedge in a couple of these like behaviors in there somewhere if I can. But ultimately, there's only so much I can do. And if you do a little bit, then you feel like you're doing something. Whereas if you need to fight for your survival as a civilization, then it becomes a lot more about, well, who is in power? Yeah. Who are you voting for? What are the structures that exist? What are the uh, things that you are pushing back against? All of the things that you were t telling us about in terms of like capture of the political system and in entrenched interests and things like that. It, it's almost like that's the one side of the coin. And then this individual personal response is the other side that's in constant tension with that. Right. So I think like a the perfect, you know, like call to action, like for us as a group and like other people is coming up with our own list of five things that we can do 
that are more um, geared toward the collective. And one of these we already talked about, like this idea of creating this templated language for the way these like things, uh, the way climate is reported about and ma making that connection for people. Like, what are some other bigger picture things that, you know, we can do and participate in as individuals that do help uh, push for collective change? Yeah. You know, like, what are the things we can investigate as individuals? Like, I know for me, like, the biggest thing I've been thinking about a lot is understanding the power structures more and who is making the decisions. Like, the other day when we were watching uh, the, the Channel 4 report, like, there was all these, like, all this imagery that was kind of spliced in into that where like there's like this image of all this um all this plastic and waste in the ocean and i it's been driving me nuts for years about like this whole thing of like oh we have to stop using plastics we have to stop using plastics but who is it that's making the decisions in the various parts of the world where this is happening to put all the plastic in the ocean like what is the origin of that and so i think as individuals we need to like try to understand that and try to help um, create movements to dismantle those decisions and get rid of those power structures that are making those detrimental decisions. Yeah. And my, my funny aside to that is every time I get a paper straw and stick it in a plastic cup, <laughs> I always think to myself, yeah, did anyone ever stop to think about this? Like this no. cup seems to be like five times the size of the straw. Yeah. And to your point, you know, I thought the social contract was that we were going to have big, stinky, gross garbage dumps and that we should be reducing our waste so that we wouldn't have big, stinky, gross garbage dumps. No one said it was OK to dump this in the ocean. Yeah. That was never a thing that any of us were cool with. So who's doing that? I'm yeah, not doing that. doing that. We don't live anywhere near an ocean. Right. And so what, what you said, Vrin, actually uh, ties everything we've talked about earlier really well together. You need to understand to. Uh, so at some level, these power dynamics, there is a story that came out that blew my mind a few weeks ago. And it goes to the lack of connecting the dots. Yeah. So the context is the fossil fuel companies have realized that as people are moving away from the consumption of fuel, that their markets are going to shrink. And so what they've de decided, and this is available in their annual reports, is plastics is the next growth for them. That's where how they will continue to grow because as a company in a capitalist society, yeah. they need infinite growth. They, they mentioned that specifically in that Exxon uh, expose. Right. Wow. It's like that. So, it, so it's like, what is it, 1950 something that plastics are the next yeah, opportunity? Like, yeah. you know. So the, there is this article that talks about and it's got such a double speak name, the Eden Project. What oh, is the, the Eden, Eden Project? Project? Yeah. The. Um, Somehow they've convinced uh, local governments across the world, this one was specifically in England, to replace natural grass with fake plastic grass so kids don't get muddy. And okay, let's, let's think about that, right? <laughs> that plastic grass, children are going to be playing and rolling around with it. We've all heard about microplastics mm -hmm. going into our body. Um, beyond that, insects. We have an insect apocalypse. It connects to our biosphere collapse. Mm -hmm. You've now reduced the habitat where you would have natural fauna. I can picture like kids playing on a fake plastic astroturf field and their parents sitting in the stands watching, drinking their lattes through a shitty paper straw that's <laughs> dissolving as they're drinking it and thinking, I'm doing something for the planet because I'm using my paper straw. <laughs> 
Oh, man. But isn't like kids getting muddy like a good thing? Like, isn't it supposed to be, you know, they got it. You got to get dirty to build your immunity. <laughs> yeah. When did that become know. a crisis? That's the crisis. That's the problem. That, that's, that's inventing a problem. That's not a problem that needs to be solved. Mud is Absolutely. mud is fine. Yeah. <laughs> On personal action and what we can do. Uh, when I was presenting, so I was giving lectures in Toronto on the severity of the climate crisis, and I did end on a call to action. I mean, everyone's situation is different. Some people mm -hmm. don't have time to become engaged, um, and some people don't have money to, let's say, donate. Yeah. Um, and beyond that, I think what would be most effective is to find a group of people who are already doing something, because it's sort of easier to join something um, and have your voice added to that whole. And what my recommendation there would be, and this is maybe a bit of work, but do some research on the different organizations that are out there and find one that is aligned with your values. Mm -hmm. And I think most importantly, with your skills. Right. So for example, there's real artists for climate change. That's for artists who want to create art. There's citizens lobby group for people who want to become uh, involved in politics. Um, there's the migrant rights um, uh, groups. I, I I don't remember all the names and organizations. There's lots of them. But one of these probably speaks to an issue closer to your heart. And as, as we've talked about a lot, the climate crisis is a very complex uh, issue with many different tentacles. And there should be one that speaks both to your values and or your skill set if you can become personally involved. And then if not, um, if you can donate money. And if not, then just have conversations. I think the, the least one person could do um, is to incorporate into their daily routine, paying attention to the climate crisis. And what that means is maybe you watch a short video or uh, read an article about it. Um, and there are excellent uh, newsletters that you could sign up for that really reduce the amount of effort, but then make it into the day-to-day, -day, uh, and I hate to use this word, uh, media consumption habits. And Bryn, you were saying before we recorded that uh, you wanted to start looking for local action. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. I, I find it a little like overwhelming. So I think that's going to be like the biggest thing to overcome is like figure out like local actions. And it, it looks like maybe like local government is not a good place to look because I started looking into that and it was very challenging, especially in an urban area. Like there's no obvious uh, actions to join. Right. So it it does seem like it would be more like non-government um, like organizations that you've already mentioned is, is like the best way to get involved and to like learn more and then offer your own skills. Um, for the local, uh, the so the city of Toronto has regular depositions. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they open up for regular citizens. You get about five minutes and you can speak to city council about issues that are important to you. Right. That is one small way. It's not, I don't think it's exactly the way that you had in mind in terms mm -hmm. of becoming like regularly involved. Mm -hmm. But you can then talk about that issue and make sure that climate is up there. Um, the city of Toronto had other um, consultations over the past several years about how to come up with a climate plan for Toronto as well. And these are ongoing things. Yeah. The other thing that we could do as well in the show notes, we'll also provide a list and links to a number of organizations, mostly focused in Canada and the Toronto area. But that could be a starting point for people to, to look at other groups that they could join. We'll start to make this an ongoing topic. Uh, probably around the end of each episode of our podcast, where we talk about one idea or a few ideas that are crossing our minds at the time of 
ways that we can potentially take action or get more involved in some of these things that we can use to start building these types of habits. So that'll be something that we'll explore and it'll become like an ongoing thing that we can start to present as options at the end and have have these discussions over how to take action in a meaningful way. So in keeping with that idea you had, Bryn, of writing our own versions, where each of us can write our own version of the five things that you mm-hmm. would do to combat climate change, that, that can be something as a starting point of yeah, what are those things that each of us would do. I mean, certainly... And hot- specifically things that, co- that are more of a collective action. Yeah, I mean, that's the part that that speaks to me the most is what are the things that contribute to collective action? The collective is contributions from everybody. I think there's there's an artificial wall between this idea of me as an individual, I'm doing something versus the idea of like leaving it to the government or the whatever, like a top down sort of collective. Whereas I think there's a bit of an artificial false distinction between the two. I mean, in a democracy, the collective- It's supposed to work for us, the government. It's supposed to be a representative of our collective goals. Well, that just reminded me of something uh, that was mind-boggling, and I'll try to find uh, the exact source, but um, a department in the United States government had created an infographic to distribute to schools in the United States about how to combat climate change. Everything on there was individual action. Nothing about collective action, nothing about voting, nothing about system change. And so this is what's being distributed. It's basically official propaganda being distributed to all the schools. That's so rich for the government to send out a thing saying like, here's where you as an individual are responsible for doing all these things. But we, the government, we don't have to do anything different. Great. (laughs) So I guess that's that's where we're going next is we're going to be thinking about writing those lists for ourselves and and thinking about how we might write that boilerplate paragraph. That's a good idea. Moving forward in our in our research and development with this project. So much of this topic, why don't I know more about this, connects directly to news and current events and the dissemination of information. So we've kind of had the news all throughout this episode. So we don't really need to do a specific segment for that. But that's obviously still going to be part of our ongoing discussions. I do have just one news that <laughs> okay. I do want to call right. out. Uh, it's an article that was published yesterday, September 24. Now you know when we recorded this. <laughs> uh, it's, it was published in Esquire. Uh, it's called, In the End, Climate Change is the Only Story That Matters uh, by Charles Pierce. Highly recommend you guys read it. Um, the title sort of gives the whole... <laughs> Uh, intent and it relates to everything that we've been talking about in terms of if it's an emergency of the scale that we're talking about it sort of really is the only story that matters well i think by now we have a better understanding of why we don't know about this (laughs) thank you all for listening and uh, this was a really interesting discussion we don't really know what the next one is about yet but as our research continues we will figure that out and very excited to see where this goes next this was a lot of fun thanks guys Or We Could Change is hosted by Ali, Aaron, and Bryn, with audio production by me, Eckhart. Please help us grow by leaving us a review and sharing this with your friends and fam.